Man, that is so encouraging. Uh, God is so good. Man. Um, I don't know how you preach after that. That's, uh, that's pretty awesome, you guys. Proud of you guys. That's super cool. Super cool. Um, well, I'm not Pastor Dave. Uh, he's in Southern California right now with family, and so uh, I get the honor of, of sharing God's Word with you this morning. Uh, and I wanted to start that off uh, by telling you just a little bit of a story. Uh, this story is from when I was six years old. Uh, I was at the beach, uh, and my mother, uh, my mother is an amazing woman, um, and uh, very few flaws. But every once in a while, every once in a while, she does something that I'm like, Mom... What are you doing that for? And uh, I was six years old, and my mom was in the kitchen of this beach house we were at, and she had a grapefruit. Um, I didn't know what a grapefruit was. I was six, but it just looked like a giant red orange. And so I went over to my mom, and she was putting sugar on it, and I was like, this is a great plan, like orange and sugar. Who would have thought? You know, like an elf when he's like coffee and syrup, all that stuff. Great idea. No. So my mom, my mom's like, yeah, it's, it's a grapefruit. It tastes just like an orange. I was like, sweet, bigger orange. Um, and little to my six-year-old knowledge, grapefruit tastes nothing like orange. Uh, it's very, very sour. Uh, and as I took the biggest bite, because orange is like my favorite fruit, I took the biggest bite. When, when, when the citric acid hit my tongue and the taste buds that know when something's sour, I freaked out. I start screaming. I'm literally running throughout the entire house trying to find a bathroom to throw up in. And I'm just over the sink. I'm just blah, in the sink. It's bad. I'm six years old. I'm dying. And, uh, and my mom, she's like, I'm so sorry. I won't tell you what she did with zucchini when I was 12, but uh, it, it tasted <laughs> disgusting. So my mom, I love her. But the reason why I tell you this story is, is we're going to see something in, uh, in this portion of Revelation uh, that we're in this morning, something that makes Jesus gag. Uh, now, grapefruit doesn't make Jesus gag, but uh, uh, something makes Jesus gag. And so if you're taking notes this morning, we're in uh, Revelation chapter 3, verses, uh, that's actually 14 through 22. Uh, I made the slide, so that's on me. Um, but we are in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22, and the title of our message this morning is Laodicea, the Godly Gag Reflex. Uh, this is our last of the seven letters to the seven churches. Uh, so take a step back or lean back in your seat. Take a deep breath. We've made it. We're all the way through Jesus' seven letters to the seven churches. Uh, we had Ephesus, which was the church that had left their first love. We had Smyrna, a church that was persecuted. Pergamos, a very worldly church. Thyatira, a church that was dealing with sexual issues. Sardis, a church that was dead. Um, and then we had last week Philadelphia, a church that was faithful and doing some amazing things for the Lord and now we end up in this church of Laodicea, which is uh, the worst of all the churches at the bottom of the list. Uh, this is the one church that Jesus has nothing good to say about them, not one good thing. Jesus only has rebuke for them. Um, and so we're going to be getting to that in just a second. But not only have we made it through the seven letters to the seven churches, but we have made it through the second phase of the book of Revelation. If you've been with us for the last few weeks as we've been studying, you know that Revelation is a book. It's the only book that comes with a divine outline. And, and John there on the island of Patmos is told to write down the things which he has seen, the things which are, and the things which will soon take place. We saw in chapter 1 Jesus uh, revealing himself to John. That's the things that he had seen, then the things which are the church age, and we've spent the last seven or eight weeks going through the church age, and then we're going to be getting to the things which are soon to come after. Uh, we haven't seen any of the craziness of the book of Revelation. Most of the time when you hear people say, oh yeah, we're going through Revelation, people are like, oh man, that's a really confusing book. 
but it's, it doesn't have to be, but the part that get people confused, uh, we haven't got there yet. In the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at the rapture, we're going to be looking at heaven, and we're going to be looking at some of those really, really cool things. Uh, and then in chapter 6, in just a few weeks, we're going to see what happens here on earth when the church is no longer here and God pours out his wrath. So that's coming, uh, but right now we're going to finish up uh, the church age. I love the church. Uh, I love the age of the church. And uh, what's really cool about these letters is, is they weren't just for those seven churches of the first century. Yes, there were very real churches there in Asia Minor, seven of them. Uh, and Jesus had some things to say to them, but these things are for us as well. And, and I know me personally, uh, I, I've grown as we've been looking through what Jesus says to the church, what Jesus says to the individual. And, and there's a lot that we can glean from that. So I'm just, I've, I've been really encouraged uh, in how it applies. It's also prophetic. You've heard Pastor Dave talk about this, so I'm not going to do much review. Uh, but not only are these representative of seven churches uh, in Asia Minor, but that is also representative of seven ages of the church. And, and so we've looked throughout the history of the church, how these different churches kind of uh, encapsulate some of the things that took place that was going on in the churches at those times. Not only is it prophetic, but these seven churches depict for us seven conditions of every single church. Every single church on the planet is one or has many of these seven aspects operating in and through them. And so the question I would want to ask is, what kind of church are we uh, today? Uh, yes, we are roughly in what would be considered the, the Laodicean age, if, if, if we look at it prophetically from history, uh, and that has been known as the lukewarm church, but I want to encourage you guys uh, that yes, there are many lukewarm churches, uh, but the church is not necessarily lukewarm. Uh, God is doing some amazing things. We're seeing the church uh, grow uh, faster and larger than it has ever grown uh, in the history of the world. Uh, maybe not here in America, but what God is doing overseas is amazing. And so uh, rather than us being like, oh man, the church is lukewarm, what a bummer. Let's be a part of something that's a lot bigger than ourselves. And let's get up and go say, hey, let's be a part of that Philadelphia kind of church, that Smyrna kind of church. Let's get out and see what God can do. Uh, in and through us. Uh, I got just a little bit of an intro, then we're going to dive in, I promise. Um, but some really cool things uh, about this portion of Scripture. Uh, about nine weeks ago, my dad asked me, hey, if, if you wanted to talk about any of the churches, what church would you want to talk about? And I said, Laodicea, like right away. And my dad was like, awesome, okay, I'm going to be gone that week anyway, so, so, so take it away. Uh, and, and there's just some really important things that I want us to focus on. Uh, but Jesus saves this portion uh, last. And I think Jesus saves it last for a reason. Because I think after we look at all the things, churches struggling with sexual immorality, churches struggling with, with with just death and churches struggling with just all sorts of sins, the thing that frustrates Jesus the most, the thing that frustrates Jesus the most, is lazy Christians who aren't doing what they were called to do. And so that's what we're going to look at uh, this morning as we read. So if you have your Bibles, let me see your Bibles. We've got smartphones, leather bounds, hard bounds. Uh, I want to see them all. Awesome. I love it. We're in Revelation chapter 3. We're going to be picking up in verse 14. We're going to read through verse 22. This is what it says. To the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither 
cold nor hot, and I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, and I have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent." Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit said to the churches. Dear God, we just pray in these next few moments, God, as we look at what your perfect word has to say. God, I pray that each and every single one of us will be challenged. God, that we will be inspired and encouraged by what your word has to say. God, I pray that uh, your spirit, God, your Holy Spirit would speak to us. Uh, God, that we would, that we would learn, uh, God, from maybe the shortcomings of, of the past churches, God, and that we would be a church that uh, continues to pioneer uh, new works of you. Uh, and, and God, so we just, we thank you so much. God, I pray that none of these words this morning would be my words, uh, but God, you'd speak through me. Anything that would be of me, God, may it fall on deaf ears or may not even be able to get it out of my mouth, but God, that your perfect word comes through. So God, we just pray all these things in your son's wonderful and beautiful name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, if you've been coming to Hillside for any length of time, you will know that when I'm up here speaking, it means there's going to be at least some bit of history talked about. I got a degree in history, and so I love history, and Laodicea is rich of history. So I'm going to give you a little historical background uh, about this church in Laodicea. And for all those Bible student types, that would be called hermeneutics. So we're going to look at the hermeneutic, uh, really, of Laodicea real quick. Laodicea, I'm going to rifle through these, so if you're taking notes, you're probably going to miss them. Come see me afterwards if you want them. Uh, but this is some really cool thing. Uh, Laodicea is 40 miles uh, uh, away from Philadelphia, the last church we looked at. It's the southeasternmost of the seven churches. It's positioned in the Lycus Valley with two sister cities, one being Heriopolis and the other one being Colossae. Paul wrote a letter to the church of uh, Colossae. You know it as Colossians. It's at the crossroads of two major uh, trade routes. And so being that it, that's where the intersection of these two trade routes came, uh, banks began to pop up, money exchanging began to pop up, and uh, Laodicea became a very wealthy city where you could buy and sell and trade gold uh, and silver and such. Uh, one of the things, or, or a few of the things that they contributed to the Roman Empire, uh, the sheep there in the Lycus Valley were of the greatest kind of sheep. Uh, they produced this very silky and soft wool uh, that was black, and it was used for very expensive uh, clothing uh, and used for carpet throughout the Roman Empire. And so uh, they were able to contribute this. Not only were they able to contribute wool and the gold, but also there was a medical school in Laodicea uh, where these people who were doctors back then, they had invented this, uh, this tablet that if you mix this tablet with the water, it would make this weird mud stuff, and you can put it on your eyes every morning. And they said it would prevent blindness and it would help you uh, have better vision as you continue to grow old. And so it actually became standard that every Roman household had this. And so this is some of the things that Laodicea was able to give uh, to the Roman Empire. Not only was it a banking town and it had these things, but it was built on a plateau. It was, it was hundreds of feet uh, above the surrounding 
ground below it, so it was an impenetrable city. It would do well uh, in battle, except for one thing. It had no natural water source. Uh, they had to bust their water in from Heriopolis and from Colossae. They built these underground aqueducts that would bring the water down. So if, it, if there was a war or a siege, all you'd have to do was cut off the water supply, and the city of Laodicea would fall. And what's crazy about all this is Jesus is going to reference all of this in this letter to them. Uh, and we're going to get to that in just a second. Um, but here in verse 14 and uh, verse 15, we see Jesus addresses the church. And in every other letter, Jesus gives some aspect of himself in the letter. We see him talk about how he has a sword that's coming out of his mouth. He has brass feet. He is the first and the last. He holds the keys of David. Well, here we see Jesus only describing himself using one word. And he says this in verse uh, 15. He says, I am the amen. The amen. Uh, We see this referenced earlier uh, in this book. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, when Jesus says, forevermore and amen. Uh, This word amen, you're probably familiar with it. Every time we pray, we pretty much close in it. Uh, And it's used in the Greek New Testament 129 times. Uh, But only once is it used as a title, and that's here. Jesus is not closing a prayer by saying, I am closing a prayer. No, he, he says, I am the amen. I am the so be it. I am the final word. What Jesus is saying is he's saying, There's no, the buck stops with me. When when I say something, I mean what I say, and I say what I mean. And so Jesus is the so be it and the very ending word. We see amen used like this only one other time in all of Scripture, and it's in Isaiah, when Isaiah refers to God the Father as the amen. And in the Hebrew, that word amen is translated as the truth. So Jesus claiming to be the truth, like he said in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he is also saying, I am the so be it, and the last word. Um, Then Jesus goes on to say that he is the beginning of the creation of God. And this has brought up a little bit of controversy in, in church history. Uh, and so if you want to know more about that, come tonight, because we're going to spend some time breaking down maybe some false doctrines and some false teachings. Like the Jehovah Witness, they believe that Jesus was created. Uh, not only did the Jehovah Witness believe that Jesus was created, but this is the very same heresy that was being taught in Colossae. And when Paul wrote his letter to the Colossians uh, in verse 1, Uh, In uh, chapter 1, verse 16 of Colossians, Paul says these very things that Jesus, not the created, but Jesus through whom all things were created. And so we're told that Jesus is is, is the beginning-er of the creation of God. He is the origin of all things that God created. And we can see that if you look at Genesis, we don't have time to do this, but Jesus is very active in creation. Very active in creation. And so Paul wrote these things to uh, the church in Colossae. And it would just make sense. Colossae is less than 10 miles from Laodicea. That this false teaching would be prevalent in Laodicea as well. So Jesus addresses this with the Laodicean church. Addresses this false teaching and says, I am God. I am the amen. I am the beginning of the creation of God. Not the first created of God. So it's just some really cool things. Come tonight if you want to hear more about that. So Jesus now has said who he is. And now he's going to tell this church in Laodicea what he thinks of them. Intro's done. Now we're getting into the first point. Okay, so our first point to, uh, this morning uh, is Jesus' distaste. Jesus had uh, some disgust with this church here in Laodicea. And we can see in verse 20 what Jesus was most disgusted about. And this is what it says in verse 20. It says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. The biggest problem with the church in Laodicea and the thing that frustrated Jesus the most 
was that there was a church claiming to be Christian, yet Jesus was outside the church. Jesus was not a part of the church. He was outside the church. He says that, hey, I know your works. I see you're doing things. So they were doing things. They were doing great things, but Jesus was not in the midst. They were sincere, but they were sincerely wrong. The Holy Spirit was not moving through this church whatsoever. We saw last week in the church of Philadelphia, it says, your door is open. And you've allowed the Lord to move through. But here we see that this church in Laodicea had a closed door. If Philadelphia was the church of the open door, Laodicea is the church of the closed door. Of all these seven letters, uh, Jesus mentioned Christians being in the churches in six of them. But this letter to the church of Laodicea, Jesus mentions zero believers. We saw the church of Sardis. You have a name that means life, but you are dead. And then it goes down to the bottom and it says, but there are some that are still alive. To you who remain, do, do. But we don't even see that here. This church in Laodicea is a church that is defined by non-believers. There is no believers in this church. And Jesus is, is saying, hey, I am on the outside. Open up, open up. And more on that in just a little bit. But for the purposes this morning, um, we can see when he speaks of lukewarm, uh, that a definer of lukewarm uh, would be someone who is not believing. And we're going to get to that in just a second. Um, someone who is pretending uh, to do church, pretending to be Christian, um, but is not. Um, so I have some, uh, a, a quote from, from a pastor that I just want to say. Uh, and he said this, and if you're taking notes, you can write this down. Uh, but it says, any attempt at Christianity without Jesus Christ is revolting to God. Any attempt at Christianity without Jesus Christ is revolting to God. Verse 15, he mentions uh, that you are neither cold nor hot. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about this portion real quick. This is the big reason why I wanted to talk about this because I've heard some teachings that I was like, eh, I don't know, that's actually what Jesus meant when he was saying these things. So let me just give you a little more background. Remember, we have Laodicea here, we have Heriopolis here, and we have Colossae here, all within this 10-mile radius of one another. No water in Laodicea, but water's being aqueduct in from Colossae and Heriopolis. Now in Colossae, they had these very fresh water mountain springs. How many of you guys ever drank a, a, a water bottle crystal geyser straight from Mount Shasta? The best bottled water there is. I mean, you put some ice in that, it's amazing. It's like cold ice water. And ice water, ice water can be very, very refreshing. How many of you guys have ever been refreshed by ice water on a hot day? Yeah, ice water super refreshing. So you had that in uh, Colossae, but then you have down in Heriopolis, you have renowned warm springs. To this day, people still travel from all over the world to Heriopolis just to go to their warm springs because warm springs are rejuvenating. They're, they bring uh, a reviving in the body, all the minerals and all the good stuff. It's like a giant hot tub. Anyone ever had a good time just sitting in a hot tub? Super relaxing, super refreshing. And so uh, Jesus here is, is saying, hey, we have hot and we have cold and they have some meaning. But I've heard taught that this teaching that, well, Jesus would rather have you be on fire for him or just completely not serving him than to be halfway serving him. I've heard that many times, but let's, let's take a step back and think of what we just heard. Did we just say that Jesus would rather have us not serving him? No, I think Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, and he wishes that none would perish. So I think Jesus wants everyone to be serving him. And, and, and so what I think is that Jesus is saying, hey, I'd rather have you be refreshing to people or reviving to people than just being lazy, not doing anything for people. 
And, and, and we're going to touch on that in just a second. But if we were to take a moment just to look at being on fire from God and being completely away from God, if that's what Jesus means, it does line up with what the Gospels say. Because the Gospels, Jesus tells us that it is easier for a harlot, a publican, or a tax collector to come to salvation than a Pharisee or a scribe who is righteous in their own ways, but it is a self-righteous and it's a lukewarmness, if we were to put it uh, in correlation with the church. So Jesus could mean this, um, but I think from a hermeneutic standpoint that Jesus is saying, hey, I want you to either be someone who's refreshing people, bringing life by, by, by being rest, by being a, a hospital for people, or, or someone who uh, is reviving people. When someone is down, the church should be there and should be helping up and should be bringing that uh, nurturing to the church, which that's what that hot and the cold water do. Because here's the crazy thing. The, the people of Laodicea, they knew this very well because their water, by the time it got bust, it was either warm and then it got bust and it was kind of lukewarm or was super cold by the time it got it was lukewarm it was dirty it had picked up stuff from the dirt and everything and it was nasty water how many of you guys had an opportunity to go swimming in a river this summer okay we didn't have much rain this spring and and, and so the rivers were really low and so normal places where there's there's been nice flowing currents we have eddies that have been cut off from the rest of the river and there's there's some little short uh shallow water that's just been being beat on by the sun all summer and it got lukewarm and then some algae started to grow and then it got really slippery on the rocks it got kind of gross and uh not anything that you'd ever want to drink I, I, I've heard from Bear Grylls on, on Man vs. Wild that you don't want to drink that water. It's bad for you. Uh, enough said on that. But uh, So they knew the difference between warm water and cold water and the good that those did, but they knew that the water that they had was not very good and it was very distasteful. So Jesus here is appealing to them uh, on these things. So uh, our second point is this. If, if our first point was Jesus' distaste, now we're going to look at the Laodiceans' deception. Uh, because Jesus says, you don't even know. You don't even know that you're not hot or cold. You don't even know I'm standing at the door knocking. You don't even know that I'm not with you. Uh, if they were to give a description uh, of how their church was and how their Christianity was, they'd say, we are rich. We are wealthy. We are in need of nothing. But Jesus says, I say to you that you are wretched, that you are poor, that you are naked. Now, we've seen this description earlier in the book of Revelation with the church of Smyrna, this church that was being persecuted. Jesus says, you say of yourself that you're poor, that you're beat up, that, that you're down in the dumps, but I say of you that you are rich. I say of you that you are wealthy and that you have built up treasure. But now we see this juxtaposition of, of the church of Smyrna who, who was humble and God said, you're great. And then this church that's prideful doesn't have Jesus in the message. Jesus says, you are poor, you are destitute, you are naked. And so Jesus is going to say some things to them right now. But I think it's important for us to, 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 to realize because that's a harsh word to hear. Oh, you think you're good? You're terrible. You're so far gone. Uh, but I'd rather hear it here on earth. I'd rather hear it here and now than to be like the rich man in the story of rich man and Lazarus, who thought he was all there, but then he ends up in hell. And he says, hey, can we send someone back to tell my brothers? Can, we send, can I go back to tell my brothers? And he, he wasn't able to go. It, it's better to hear that message now, while you can still change, than to hear it when you're in a place where you can't change. And we're going to talk just a little bit more about that in just a second. But the cool thing is God's word is a mirror. And we're able to look at God's word and see what God's word has to say to us. And it brings correction and it brings uh, conviction. And it's when we admit 
that we are a sinner. It's when we admit that we're in these places of lukewarmness that Jesus can come and fix it. I'm reminded of the story in John chapter 9 where there was this blind man, and it says he was blind from birth. And, and, and Jesus comes to him, and, and Jesus says, what's wrong? And he admits that he's blind. He says, I'm blind. I'm blind. And just then he heals him. He, he makes some, mixes some spit with some dirt, makes some mud, puts it on his eyes, and he heals his blindness. But not only does he heal his blindness and make him so he could say, I once was blind, but now I see. But he heals his heart. And he heals him spiritually. And, 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 and he brings freedom in his life. And then, here's the crazy part. He goes to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are like, what's going on, man? And he says, since you have not admitted your own blindness, sin still reigns in your heart. And so we need to admit that, hey, we're a sinner. We need grace. And then Jesus can come and he can heal not only our physical, but he can heal uh, our spiritual as well. Uh, so the Pharisees, these lukewarm, this example of lukewarmness uh, in Jesus' context. Jesus is going to give them some direction uh, on what to do, on how to become uh, a true follower of Christ. And so that's our third point. We have Jesus' distaste. We have the Laodiceans' deception. And now we have Jesus' direction. And and Jesus gives some very, very clear direction. He says this in verse 18. He says, I counsel you. I counsel you. Now, one of the nice descriptions we have of Jesus, it comes from the Old Testament when it says he is the wonderful counselor. We hear it all the time in Christmas songs and stuff, but Jesus is a wonderful counselor, and he's going to do some very wonderful counseling to this church in Laodicea. The cool thing is Jesus meets this church where they are at. And Jesus meets us where we're at. See, it was this church that was rich. They had a lot of, or, or, or this region that was rich and they had a lot of gold. They had a lot of wool and they had a lot of eye medicine. And Jesus says to them, buy gold from me. Get white robes from me. Get this eye salve that'll help you spiritually see. Jesus meets people where they're at. To the woman who was at the well who was thirsty, Jesus says, I am the living water. To the group of people that were hungry, he says, I am the bread of life. I would like to imagine that if God went to a golfer, he'd say, I'm the pitching wedge to get you out of the rough and onto the green. Jesus meets people where they're at. And the really cool thing is that's an example for us. We can meet people where they're at. We don't have to come and talk all this churchianity, Christianity to them. We meet people where they're at. I think if Jesus was writing this today, he might say, you need a double shot of forgiveness, download some grace, and get a prescription for some uh, uh, contact lens so that you can see things the way I want you to. Jesus meets people where they're at, and this is really, really important. When he talks about buying gold, Come tonight, we're going to hear more about some of the, the, the symbolism that's used there when it's talking about buying the gold uh, that's... Uh, refined by fire. But here's the thing. Jesus is telling them, hey, rather than building up your riches here on earth, trying to do things in and of yourself, why don't you build up treasure in heaven where moth and rust can't destroy? Why don't you do some things that will that'll build up your spiritual and your eternal richness with me? He goes on and he tells them that you should buy from me uh, garments of white, linens of white. He says, hey, look, you got this really fancy black clothing and it's great, but you're clothed in the filthiness of your own actions. We're told that even our best works are as filthy rags unto the Lord. He says, hey, get rid of those things and put on, put on the garments I have for you so that you will be washed as white as snow. Put on these garments and see what I can do through you. And then he goes on to say, put this salve in your eyes so that your eyes may be open spiritually so that you can see the things that I have for you. It reminds me of that story in the Old Testament 
Elijah and his servant, they're camping out in this tent and they're in the middle of a valley uh, and, and somebody betrayed Elijah and uh, the armies come against him and there's hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of soldiers surrounding them. And Elijah, his, his servant like peeks through and like looks back in like, Elijah, we gotta go. Something's going on. There's like armies all around and Elijah's just super calm. He's like, Elijah, what are you doing? We should be freaking out right now. There's armies everywhere. And Elijah's like, man, dude, it's okay. It's okay. And then Elijah prays. And he says, God, open his eyes. Open his eyes. And then something amazing happens. And he looks back out. And he sees the armies of the Lord. Thousands upon thousands of angels surrounding. And so here's the thing. God wants to open our eyes to the spiritual. We might think we're doing well in and of ourselves. Yeah, you know what? I'm doing good. I... I'm not that bad of a person. I'm all right. I'm, I go to church every Sunday. Uh, I, I, I wave to the homeless people on the side of the road. I'm doing good. But Jesus says, no. Let me open your eyes so you can see the brokenness and the hurt in your own life. And let me come in and fix it. And then from that, you can go and you can share grace and you can share mercy and you can share love, peace, hope, and joy with the world around you. Jesus wants to open our eyes. But we just got to admit we need our eyes open. And then Jesus will open our eyes with his eyes have. Jesus met the church of Laodicea where they were at. And how does he say you can have all this applied? It says buy gold. Does that mean you purchase your salvation? No, it's already been purchased. Jesus purchased our salvation on the cross with his blood. Now all we need to do is we need to come to him and say, I, I want what you have. I want what you have. What is it? It says in verse 19, repent. Repent. I think Jesus, if you were to meet the skateboarder where the skateboarder was at, he'd say, do a 180. Kick, flip, and turn around. Like, let's go. Repent, repent, repent. And so that's the call to the non-believer. And we've looked at lukewarm as this thing, as, 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 as a non-believer, this church that didn't have any Christians. But this lukewarmness still affects us as believers, and so here's a word to the believer. This, this lukewarmness, this, this putting Jesus on the outside, we saw the church in Ephesus go through this. They'd forgotten what their first love was. They got so caught up in doing good that they'd left Jesus on the outside. Guys, we can do that. And so the warning to us, and I think the encouragement to us is, don't put Jesus on the outside. And how do we do that? Well, in verse 19, he gives us a really good antidote. He says, not only do we repent to the non-believer, but to the believer, be zealous. Be zealous. What does it mean to have zeal? It means be crazy excited about the things of Jesus. Jesus is doing some amazing things. The church is doing some amazing things. The Holy Spirit is doing some crazy things to the lives of believers who are on fire for Christ. We are to be zealous. We're to be all out for the Lord. There's crazy things. My brother's from Teen Challenge. This is something to get excited about. We can get super stoked about the, the, just what God is doing, and we can have zeal. And that's how we don't get lukewarm, is when we are constantly zealous about the things of the Lord. When we hear something about uh, a mission trip, let's get on board. Let's see, hey, can I go? Can I support? What can I do? Uh, there's so many opportunities. We have downtown outreach. We have a Wichita dinner coming up. There's so many opportunities to get excited about the things of the Lord, doing what he's called us to do. I mean, Jesus was 12 years old when he kind of left his mom and dad. I don't recommend that to any 12-year-olds in here. Uh, it can freak them out. But Jesus, he leaves them because he's excited about something. And he's hanging out in the synagogue telling people about the law, telling people. He's like, Pharisees, this is what it is. And they're like, oh my goodness, who is this kid? This kid is smart. 
like, are you smarter than a fifth grader? No, because Jesus is a super smart fifth grader. And like, so they're getting super excited. And when, when, when Mary comes, she's like, Jesus, where have you been? And he's like, come on, mom. I'm winning this TV show. No, he says, I must be about my father's business. He was excited about the things of the Lord. He was excited about his father's mission. And that excitement sparked and his disciples got excited. And they went and they planted churches. And those churches got excited. And they were vibrant like the church of Philadelphia. And they got excited. And they said, in our faithfulness, we're going to go plant new works. And we are here today as a result of people being excited about the gospel. You want the remedy to not be lukewarm? Get excited about Jesus. And get excited about what Jesus is doing in and through the church. But hey, here's one. How about in and through you? It's so easy for us to sit back on the pews of church and just be like, yep, you know what? God's doing some cool things. That's great. Or we can be like, man, I can't believe the church. Just lukewarm. Man, gosh, the church isn't doing anything. No! The church is doing something. And you can get up and you can be a part of it. And we can all get up from these seats and go do something about the gospel. Go do something for this world in the name of Jesus. Amen. We want to see change in this world. Let's go be the change that this world needs, right? Amen. God is good. God is good. Okay. So the second law of thermodynamics. My dad's not here, so someone's got to talk about science. The second law of thermodynamics says that in a closed system, things will go from order to disorder. It's the law of decay. Something will start out great and it'll go to disorder. But the, the, the law continues to say, unless an outside force is added, this system will die. Unless an outside force is added, this system will die. If the church is this system, and if this church is closed, like the church in Laodicea was closed, they had closed their doors. If the church is a closed system, it will go from order. Jesus established it. He said, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not stand against it. It was orderly. It was good. But if the doors are